According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians 2 once again. I kind of think uh, as we continue this review, we'll get through chapter 2, chapter 3. If we don't get to chapter 4, that's okay, because that's the most recent chapter we've been in anyway, uh, not as critical as the earlier chapters for review purposes. And, uh, and we'll see. Uh, but with the Kiev trip coming up and uh, being off, uh, we'll see if maybe coming back from Kiev, then we'll be targeting a, a launch date for Colossians, uh, you know, first part of June, I guess, when we come back. End of May, first part of June. So uh, keep that in prayer as well, if you would. All right. God of Spirit, He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father's faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for your faithfulness. Yet again, Father, we are here as testimonies to your grace, to your mercy, to your faithfulness. You have provided for the Word of God to go forth. And uh, we're here in this facility. The, the bills are paid, the doors are open, the lights are on, because you are the God of grace. And we thank you for all that you provide. We call upon that grace once again tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us, leading us in all things, even the deep things of God. So we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Microphone runner is ready to go. All right, so we'll give Randy Blair here our lead-off question. I feel I owe you that since I have failed to answer your question from three weeks ago. Thank you. My question is in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Matthew eleven twelve. Okay, uh, and I, I kind of know where the context that you know the surrounding verses, but I'm just having trouble understanding fully what that verse is talking about. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Yeah, that is a, a puzzle, isn't it? Um, and I don't remember. Uh, we taught this in the Life of Christ series. Um, Bolander, Life of Christ. There's the Life of Christ series notebook. And so John has a question here. Are you the expected one? Should we seek another? And then the Lord's uh, examination of the crowds concerning John. Matthew's recorded detail. It's unique to Matthew. In this event, Luke does record this content in another event. In Luke 16, 16. Jesus made the comment pertaining to current events among God's stewards from the days of John the Baptist until now. So that's the uh, age of Israel, uh, dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. Is that too small to read? There we go. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, present passive indicative of biadzo, and uh, to dominate, to constrain. Violent men snatch it or grab it. Well, that partly answers the question. I'm, I don't remember what I said. I have to go back and listen to the MP3s. Isn't that amazing? So whatever I said back then, I'm sure was right. <laughs> I just don't remember. You can too, by the way. So um, finding these notes is very useful. 
being able to look it up by the scripture reference, Matthew uh, eleven twelve. And then when you go to the church website, not Amazon, I'm shopping for printers. Not cross tables, that's Scrabble related. Here we go. So the church website. And um, under audio recordings, uh, completed studies, and life of Christ. And, uh, and you can look it up by that section. So for example, we knew uh, when I was looking at this earlier, it's uh, the Galilean ministry of Jesus, episode 20, Jesus encourages John the Baptist. So you can actually navigate to that section here on the website. And, um, and if you're not sure, if you need to look up the harmony itself, then the, uh, the harmony of the Gospels page right there is, uh, is pretty handy and the PDF is right there so that you can go down this table, you can scroll down this table, you can find your, your reference there in Matthew 11 and, uh, and then you can find it and it's going to be right there. Jesus encourages John the Baptist episode 20 of the Galilean ministry, Matthew 11, verse 2 through 19. And so that kind of, that helps you pinpoint it. Then uh, just scroll down to it. There's Galilean ministry right there. And uh, go down to find episode 20. And uh, Jesus encourages John the Baptist. There it is. So there's the four hours of teaching we did on it. Those four MP3 files. There's the PDF for just that episode. It doesn't have the whole uh, notebook, but it just has that page for that one that one episode, and uh, and then listen to the audio files there. So that's a pretty handy way of doing that. All right, other questions tonight. Doug, you had a question, and Wes has a question. All right. If Wes remembers his, Doug does not remember his. Okay, that's fine. I was wondering in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. Fifty-four. I was just curious: is the centurion and the others here would they be considered the first church-age believers? <laughs> uh, good question, but no, because uh, the church age begins at Pentecost, uh, so that's fifty days away. Um, the church age begins as the Holy Spirit descends uh, on the day of Pentecost. So, uh, but he is clearly, I, I think he's saved on this event that he, uh, he, he identifies the presence of God and, and God the Son dying on the cross. Uh, so, um, and then there's tons of legends about this guy in the early church fathers and other, uh, they like to talk about him and, and things like that. So how much of that can you believe, you know, uh, did Notre Dame really have the thorn of crowns that was on Christ's head and the relics that they, they talk about in later years, but, um, no, they, so if this is the moment of his salvation, I think it is, uh, then it's still not church age. It's not church age until Pentecost, which is 50 days away from this. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, and anything else? Other questions? Did you have a follow-up? No, okay. All right, well then uh, we'll go to Philippians then. Thank you for running the microphone. I have the right slideshow here because on Sunday we were dealing with have this attitude we've already covered make my joy complete tonight I want to talk about work out your salvation Philippians 2 verses 12 through 18 work out your salvation this is always very useful 
Let's read the verses here, 12 through 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And then verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. All right, so there's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. A lot of real uh, treasures in there in terms of uh, the blessings we have to relax and let God do the work. God's the one that's at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So uh, if, if you feel a lot of pressure with the imperative to work out your own salvation, then you can relax because the very next verse says God's the one doing it. That uh, it's God who's at work in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So as we deal with this, Work out your salvation. Work, no, don't work for your salvation. Don't save yourself. You're already saved. That's a given. You have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's the, the paragraph we just finished in the kenosis doctrine there uh, for Jesus. Um, work out your salvation. This is the outworking of your faith. You want to be very clear on this. The so then that starts it off. So then, my beloved. Uh, means that you better understand everything that's in that kenosis paragraph because that doctrine of humility, that doctrine of, of exaltation that Jesus uh, taught there with the kenosis hymn, that then becomes the application. So then takes the doctrine of humility and exaltation of Jesus Christ in the kenosis hymn and directs the application to the Philippian saints. And through then, then of course, by extension, us, all believers in the church age, can make this application. And uh, technically speaking, it's a hosta independent clause followed by the imperative, which we won't care about tonight, but it is what it is. All right. So this is now our application. Follow the example of Jesus. Think the way he thought, live the way he lived. Jesus was obedient without limit, as were the Philippians. And so there's a lot of parallels here. In fact, a lot in these verses goes back to those earlier verses. And when we talk about obedience here, well, they've always obeyed. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So they were, they, they were kind of the anti-Corinth, right? They were a good church. They, they were obedient. And even when Paul wasn't looking, when Paul wasn't there, you know, the, the true test of character, are you the same person when people are watching, when people aren't watching? And uh, so we have obedience. And in this parallel here, because of course there's obedience in verse 8. Uh, for Jesus, uh, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have this so then language that means we're taking that example of Christ and now we're bringing it to the Philippians for their application. And uh, obedience is the first thing that we observe here is being uh, parallel. The Philippians always obeyed in Paul's presence, much more in his absence. That's a clue, by the way, that he's not made a return visit to Philippi since that one time that he was there. The use of parousia and apousia. 
This becomes fun. Presence and absence. And, and talking about Paul's presence and Paul's absence, really though the application is Jesus' presence and Jesus' absence. The church age is the age of Jesus' absence, waiting for His parousia, waiting for His coming as He's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's really a, def- a definition of, of the church age itself. Concepts of parousia and concepts of apousia. Presence and absence. He calls them beloved, so we had some discussion related to what it means to be beloved. And uh, obviously his son is beloved. The apostles were beloved. And all believers within church age, we are beloved. Paul will often use this term, 27 times he uses this term when he's greeting his readers, when he's talking about his fellow saints. Just the blessing of agapetos is marvelous because it, it speaks of agape love. It's not mushy, it's not sentimentalism, it's not emotionalism. It's, uh, yes, it's beloved, but it's beloved with the agape love, not any other kind of love. And so we recognize that every one of us is an object of God's grace, every one of us is an object of God's love. And we have the, uh, the delight to uh, call one another that. And it's useful. Uh, you know, if, you, if, if we get in the habit of speaking to one another as beloved, uh, it's, uh, it makes it that much more difficult to harbor a mental attitude sin against them, you know, to, to you know, hold a grudge or to, to, you know, linger in some dark, ugly thoughts. So what are you even doing with those? Uh, this is beloved, beloved in the Lord. So let's, uh, let's call each other that, even as Paul does in all of those uses there. Plenty of examples of that. Peter also uses it. All right. Here's the statement. With fear and trembling... The salvation of yourselves, keep on working out. Keep on working out. And so adjusting our English, it sounds a little Yoda-like, but if we, uh, if we adjust our English based upon the word order in the Greek, I think we have a, a good sense of it here. With fear and trembling, start with that. Okay, If you lose the fear of the Lord, forget anything else that you're going to do in the Christian walk. With fear and trembling. So start there. Have the appropriate reverence before God. And, uh, and uh, start with that. The salvation of yourselves keep on working out. This, uh, this assumes that you have it, right? You're already saved if, if it's yours. It's something you already possess. But you're going to continue the outworking of that salvation in application. You might recall that's uh, the conclusion we came to on this. All right? We have to talk about the different ways that save gets used and salvation gets used and things that maybe you've heard before or uh, you've heard so many times you're sick of hearing it, but it's useful because I can't tell you when people mix these things up, they end up with, uh, with all sorts of confusion. All right, so fear and trembling. It is not only the manner with which they will work out their salvation. It is exactly the manner in which they have always obeyed. And uh, that statement is, is connected there in verse 12, just as, in the same way as, through the same methodology, through the same attitudes, just as you have always obeyed, so too now much more uh, work out your salvation. So it's the manner, it's the means. And, and they're, not, they're not new at this. This is how they've always been functioning. It's exactly the manner in which they have always obeyed, with phobos and traumas. Uh, an expression that Paul is uh, fond of. We see it here and these other places. We won't turn there tonight. Um, but it's throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's grounded in the Septuagint. We have it in Psalm 2 and verse 11. It's, um, Psalm 2 is a great messianic passage that Wes is working on right now for, 
for his upcoming class. Um, talking about the Son and the glory of the Son. Today I have begotten thee. And uh, the warning that comes to worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. So there's fear and trembling there with worship and rejoicing. Do homage to the Son and that He not become angry and that you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So we have the millennium in view there in Psalm 2 and verse 11. Fear and trembling. And uh, if there's uh, something I, I think about every now and then, is the church age so different from Israel? Is the church so different from Israel? Is our, is our function in grace such that we, um, we get sloppy in this regard? Or we get, do, we, do, we, do we not have the same fear and reverence that we should have? And if, if we don't, we need to adjust because, and I think the book of Hebrews does a good job to, to warn us about that. Our God is a, cons- a consuming fire. We do want to render a, a service with reverence and awe. And uh, we don't want to lose uh, sight of that. So fear and trembling is, uh, is necessary. Alright, then it says the salvation of yourselves. Work out your salvation. And so this is where it's useful to always stop and ask ourselves, alright, the word save is being used, in what way is it being used? Because it's not used the same way every time in the New Testament. And it's used in at least four different ways. We want to be clear on this. So the salvation of yourselves. And it does say work out, it doesn't say work for, and it doesn't say earn or deserve or produce it, but work it out. An outworking of your salvation that you received by grace through faith. Alright, well um, and this I don't want to go too fast in the review, but hopefully if you've never had this before, then, uh, then you know, write it down and, and chew on it, ask me some questions about it. If you have had it before, then, uh, then just remind yourself that, oh yeah, this is what it's about. Uh, but essentially there's four ways. Can I put them on the same slide? Okay, I only listed three of them anyway. All right. So we can talk about our positional salvation, our experiential salvation, the ultimate salvation. The fourth one is really just a uh, temporal deliverance. Uh, You're being rescued from a physical danger. Uh, And so that's also, we use the same verb. And this is what happens. The New Testament authors will use, the verb is sozo, to save, or the noun is soteria, for salvation. And then the New Testament will use the same exact vocabulary in these different realms. All right? And so sometimes it's talking about a past salvation, something that was done before, something that, you know, for me was in, in, in 1973. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, 40 however many years ago. And that's what we talk about when you get saved, when you uh, receive eternal life, when, uh, when you pass from the domain of darkness into light, all those expressions, right? When you are born again. That, and the Bible uses sozo in those ways. And that's really the easiest to understand because we've all been there, <laughs> right? So um, uh, just th- these will be easy. These are no-brainers to look at. Acts 4.12 because this first one is the one that everybody jumps to when they see the word saved. And that becomes problematic if it's, it really belongs in the second or third category. So um, talking about Jesus, this is a, a sermon by Peter here. And he says um, in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead's name, this man stands here before you in good health. 
And so here's a healing that had been done and uh, they want to know how was it done? It was done in the name of Jesus Christ. He said, uh, verse 11, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief corner stone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So there you have it. That's exclusive. It's clear. It's uh, the... the uh, the exclusivity of the gospel. There's no other name. Muhammad won't get you there. Buddha won't get you there. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name given uh, among men by which we must be saved. Okay, Pretty obvious, pretty evident that this is talking about the, the phase one salvation, the, the uh, coming to uh, eternal life moment. Same thing with the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31. What must I do to be saved? Is what he's asking uh, Paul here. Because uh, it boggles his mind that with the earthquake and the breaking of the chains and you know any inmate could have escaped if they wanted to, and Paul didn't escape. He was still sitting right there. And uh, so the jailer wants to know, uh, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, or uh, Paul and, and uh, Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so that's a very easy example of sozo that's used for what we call phase one salvation, the past positional salvation. Um, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. These are very well known passages with the use here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And then Ephesians 2 verse 5 and verse 8 you probably use many of these, or even all of these. You could use these in your evangelism. You can use these. Talking about taking an unbeliever and getting him saved. Now he has eternal life. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So you used to be dead, but you've been made alive. That's the, that's the second birth. That's getting saved. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right, so that's the easiest one. And that's the one every, your, every, every reader, every mind just jumps to that one anytime they see the word saved. Well, that becomes a problem. It becomes a problem in certain passages, uh, particularly work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought we just read we can't work for that. It's, it's got to be by grace. It's through faith. I can't work for that. No, you cannot work for that. All right. Then we have a present tense salvation, the experiential salvation, ongoing salvation in the Christian walk, in the Christian experience. And, and whereas in phase one salvation, that only happens once. It's once and forever, eternal, secure, and there you have it. It's a one-time event. But the repeated salvation of a believer day by day, moment by moment, Every time the Word of God comes alive and every time you are rescued from the temptations of sin, that this is it's the New Testament will reference either the verb sozo or the noun soteria or some uh, related term. And so some good examples of this. Uh, and I can give you more than, than just the ones that are on the slide there. But Romans 5, verse 9 and verse 10.
So um, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood. So you see what God did for us when he saved us. How much more now is he going to keep on saving us again and again and again, repeatedly, experientially? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So this present ongoing incidence of, of saving day by day, moment by moment in the Christian walk. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. We shall be, present tense, right now in time in the outworking of the Christian walk. So that's a present tense reality. It's experiential rather than positional. 1 Corinthians 1.18, if you want another example. And I like the fact that, that that Romans 5 passage does so well at spelling out what was done for you and what is presently still being done for you. All right, 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is foolishness to the, to the perishing ones, to those who are perishing, but to us who are presently now the being saved ones, it is the power of God. We are presently now the being saved ones. A lot of folks take that as a, as a, a phase one salvation reference. I, th- I think it's better to take it as a phase two. The presently being saved ones. All day, every day, God keeps on saving me. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. There's no question that these are believers. They've done, been saved. But now Paul's going to talk to them about the ongoing saving that they need as they stand in the Word of God. Because he says, in which also you stand, by which also you are presently being saved, again and again and again, every day, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here's a case where believers, you can, be, you can have been saved once and for all, but then not live in the word of God, not abide in the word of God, not let the word of God shape your thinking. And you can go day by day by day with no additional salvation experiences in, on an experiential basis as we see it here, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Did you get saved for no purpose? You know, the whole idea of getting saved and then just waiting around to go to heaven when you die, that's wasting a whole lot of Christian walk in between there, right? I mean, what are you really doing? And that's not why he saved you. He didn't, he didn't save you so that you could just kind of, you know, bank it as a, you know, so, is it fire insurance? You just, you know, you're just, you're just glad you have it so that you, because you don't want to go to hell when you die. But in the meantime, your life is, is horrible. You're not growing in the Word of God. You're not being transformed. So if you're not being transformed, what's the consequence? You're conformed to this age. You're just as worldly as the unbeliever. And of course, yeah, you're not going to go to hell when you die, but you're going to get to heaven with nothing, with no treasure, with no reward. With What a disappointment. And uh, so we need the ongoing walk in the Word of God. And that ongoing walk in the Word of God is going to have several 
uh, daily repeated salvation experiences as he as the the power of the word of God saves us from the sin temptations and the snares that we encounter. Saying, does that bother you that the word saved is used in those in those different ways? Well, hope not. Stop letting it bother you so much because the New Testament uses it repeatedly. Okay, one that's not on the on the slide that I quote a lot is in in James chapter one. Another great example of experiential salvation. And um, you've got to have humility to receive the word implanted. It's James 1.21 is the verse I'm looking at. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. Right? That's why you've got to be transformed by the word of God. In humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Phase two salvation right there. It's the second use of sozo. It's the ongoing salvation. And how powerful is it when you're humble before the word of God and you're in Bible class and you're growing and you're learning and the word of Christ is richly dwelling within you because you're you're living there. You're abiding in it. And then, uh, you know, a temptation comes and, uh, and, and the Word of God is right there to speak to you. That's how Jesus answered all His temptations. When the devil said, turn these stones into bread, and He said, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus was just saved at that moment. The Word of God saved Him in that temptation. That's the usage of this experiential uh, salvation that we're talking about here. And of course, Jesus didn't need to get saved positionally, Right? But he was saved constantly by the Word of God day by day in his, in his Christian walk. Anyway, it is able, I like that, able to save your soul. And guess what? If you don't use it, it's not going to save your soul. It's able to, but you can, uh, you can forsake it. You can ignore it. You can quench it. You can resist it. And all those things we're advised not to do. All right. There's also a future salvation tense. And this is one that's used uh, it's still the same verb, the same noun, the same expression for being saved, but it talks about what's not yet going to happen until we're face to face with Jesus Christ. And so this is the ultimate salvation. Uh, sometimes uh, it's called positional sanctification, experiential sanctification, ultimate sanctification. Alright? And uh, this is where the, the Bible will talk about being saved. Our bodies, by the way, are waiting for this. Um, but there's still a future salvation that we're all waiting for. Romans 13, 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Right? When we believed that was phase one salvation. But this salvation that's nearer to us, that's phase three. That's the ultimate, the future salvation. That's when we're absent from the body and at home with the Lord. That's called a salvation. And yet it's still future. How much, how, you know, how close is it? Well, I don't know how close, but it's closer than 40 years ago, right? It's closer than, you know, ever before. It's never been so close, right? I've never been this old before. We're, we're getting closer. I mean, it's just the way it works. Time is that one-way street that's always headed, you know, in the older direction, okay? Hebrews 9.28.
Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. And of course you can do different things with that verse too, applying it to the second advent, applying it to Israel's salvation. But when He appears again in a church context at the rapture, it is also called a salvation. And uh, we are going to be with Him in an ultimate salvation kind of way. So when we're looking at work out your salvation then, which one of these three are we talking about? Obviously. Number two is the obvious choice. But I think that it's, it's deeper than that. That not only is it the number two, phase two salvation, that working out your salvation means that we're, we're living the Word of God and, and we're, we're watching the Father do this, but it also has phase three in view as well. Understanding that everything we do here in time is rewardable. And it's going to have a, a, a resurrection blessing connected with it as well. But seeing Philippians 2.12 as an application of the number two salvation, that's obvious. That's obvious. It's, it's, it's experiential. We're, we're in, uh, undertaking the Christian walk at this point. Beyond that though, the comparison with Jesus where the Father exalts Him and bestows on Him a name. Remember? That's, that, that was in the previous paragraph. Because He humbled Himself, the Father also highly exalted Him. If, if, if we really have that complete parallel from, from the kenosis paragraph to this paragraph, then what happens when we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? What's going to be the eternal effects of that? Okay. Well, give me a contextual basis to, uh, to take this idea of work out your own salvation and uh, to see that it's in time and in eternity uh, reflected by the rewards that the Father grants us there great rewards that the Father grants us there. All right. And I think too, when you're looking at this, um, it's God who's at work in you to willing to do of His good pleasure that um, the day of Christ is in view. When it says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory. So watching brothers and sisters bear fruit, it's great to see here and now. I love it. I, 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 when I see brothers and sisters that are serving the Lord and using their spiritual gifts and pursuing ministry, and I mean, that's just a delight. It's fun to watch that. It's going to be more fun at the Bema seat to watch Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. To watch the gold, silver, and precious stones be purified and, and delivered. What a, what a thrill is that going to be? And Paul said he would have reason to glory. I'm going to have reason to glory. If Paul was excited about seeing the Philippian reward, I'm going to be excited about seeing the, the, the Austin Bible Church reward. Knowing that I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. And so, um, yeah, I think we can span both uh, phase two and phase three uh, salvation usages in this, in this context. Alright. So the salvation of yourselves. Keep on working out. Keep on working out. Kat ergodzamai. Keep on working out. And the fun thing about this one, we spent some time on this one, but um, <laughs> the kat uh, is an intensifier, and so ergodzamai by itself, ergon is a work, is a deed, and, and ergon is a work, and ergodzamai is a verb to work, but kata intensifies it. And really, beyond the fact of working, it actually stresses the, the uh, outcome, the consequences, the results. 
that you're actually getting results done. Uh, you're bringing about a result by doing something. It's a verb of accomplishment. And, uh, and that grabs our attention too because there's an awful lot of people that, that are busy doing a lot of things. And then you ask yourself, well really, I see you're doing all this, but what are you accomplishing? <laughs> you know? I mean, how do you have months and years of, of doing, 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 and then you look back at it and think, what have you done? What have you accomplished? And uh, this is a verb of accomplishment. It's used 22 times in the New Testament, but only once. There's only one time ever that uh, the verb is used as an imperative mood, as a command. And that's the passage we're looking at right here. It's uh, the only time ever that uh, it's given in an imperative. And, uh, and I think that's not accidental. Okay, I think for the most part, I mean, because this is results-oriented, and for the most part we're called to be faithful, we're called to obey, we're called to serve, and in several t- passages um, we're also admonished to relax about the results because we may not see the results in time. There's an awful lot, you know, some, the, the results are in God's hands. And, uh, and so, you know, does that mean that this passage is contradictory to all those other passages? Does this mean that, you know, we're trying to say two things at once? I don't think so. Because in the one place where this verb is given in the imperative mood, we acknowledge, okay, it's given in the imperative mood, but it's also connected to a verse right next to it that says, God's the one getting it done. Okay? So if you're overwhelmed by the imperative to produce results, um, okay, just relax about it though, uh, because verse 13 says, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we can take some, some solace in that. That yes, this is uh, an imperative that commands us to get results, but we're only going to get those results if we get ourselves out of the way and let God do the work. God's the one that is, uh, is working. Alright, so that was fun. And there's uh, a color wheel on that and some other things. All right. Yes, assigning the production, the achievement, the accomplishment for us. I don't care if it's phase one salvation, phase two salvation, phase three salvation. For any of those phases of salvation, um, putting the obligation on us to make it happen seems kind of ludicrous. Ludicrous until we learn that it's God Himself who is at work in us. Okay? So it's like, uh, you know. Uh, God expects you to have success on the golf course, but uh, by the way, he's, he's teamed you up with Tiger Woods. How about that? All right, so the two of you together should do okay, right? Uh, or, you know, on the basketball court and you're teamed up with LeBron James or something, right? You know, yeah, the, the two of you will probably get it done, all right? Whatever the case is. And so here's God working in you, okay? Here's God working in you. So you think, uh, you think he's got a handle on it? You know, what a, what a blessing for us to, uh, to consider these things. The one working in you is God. The one working in you is God. He is ha intergon. He is the one working. The one working in you. If you let him, that's the thing. Are you a fellow worker or not? Are you going to be volitionally on board or are you going to kind of (laughs) shove him off to the side and say, here you go God, I've got this. And then uh, you insist on doing what you want to do. And then even worse, you ask Him to bless what you're doing. Why are you doing that? Don't ask God to bless what you're doing. Why don't you do what God's blessing? That's the better direction to to think of that. All right. 
The one working in you is God. When you consider the blessings we have in the church age are so powerful and so um, unique. The, the Old Testament didn't have this. You know, they, no Old Testament believer could have written about God at work in them to will and to do of His good pleasure. No Old Testament saint could have written about the, the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit or being baptized in a union with the risen Savior, any of that. These are things that, that are our heritage in the church age. It is such such a contrast between Israel and the church, it becomes undeniable and it's tragic to me when, when uh, people try to deny this, this simple thing. God does the work. Energeo is the verb. You might recognize the idea of energy in that. God's doing the work. Don't, don't serve in your own energy. Don't serve in your own strength. Let, let God do the work. Used 21 times in the New Testament. And uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I don't know that we'll look at all of those tonight, but 1 Corinthians 12, I like to use this because you've got a trinity here and you've got gifts and ministries and effects. And it goes so well with what we're seeing in Philippians with God being the one doing the work. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Okay? There are distributions of gifts, but the same student, uh, Spirit. So all the different gifts, 11 permanent church age spiritual gifts, and there's varieties. But the same Holy Spirit gives them and empowers them. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. So we have God the Holy Spirit who gives your spiritual gift and empowers your spiritual gift. But then there's Jesus Christ who opens doors of ministry and leads you into that ministry. And so you want to have both, obviously. You want to be following the leadership of the Lord in your ministry pursuits, and you want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You want that means in fellowship and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the exercise of your spiritual gift, right? Gifts are not the same as ministries. They're different. And uh, different things we can say about that, right? Because uh, I've got the pastor-teacher gift, and, uh, and, and mine is a pulpit ministry of a, of a local church, a domestic local church, we might say, all right? Jim Myers is a, is a missionary pastor teacher. And he's got the same spiritual gift I do, but a different ministry, right? And then uh, even multiple ministries. You could think about, um, of course, there's the pulpit ministry, there's the training ministry, uh, uh, you know, training men to be pastors and evangelists and, and teaching languages, things like that. Uh, there's prison ministries, there's all kinds of ministries, right? And you just have varieties between the gifts and between the ministries. All right. And then the third leg of this trinity, we've got a Father involved as well, not just the Holy Spirit, not just Jesus Christ. There are varieties of effects. You know what those effects are? Those are the works. Those are the, the accomplishments, the things done. A variety of effects but the same God who energeo, who works all things in all, all things in all. Okay? He works all things in all. I know they put persons in there, but I think it's all gifts and ministries. You know, the maximum work the Father will do will be working through gifted believers in Christ-led ministries. Uh, other things? Yeah, the Father can work in other things. But why would the Father work in, in, in something you're doing apart from a Christ-led ministry? Why would the Father honor that? Because the Father is about glorifying His Son. 
And why would the Father work in something that you're doing in the flesh rather than the filling of the Holy Spirit in, uh, in the exercise of your spiritual gift? Sure, the Father can, but why would He? The Father does His maximum effects through gifted believers filled with the Holy Spirit pursuing Christ-led ministries. And then you got a full trinity working on your behalf. How powerful is that? What a joy is that? And so we think about, um, again, so my gift, pastor-teacher, my ministry, ministries plural. We can think about different effects, right? What might be an effect? An effect, well, we could say uh, um, Pastor Cliff is an effect of our training ministry. Pastor Dan is an effect of our training ministry, okay? And, and not to limit to only those that went all the way to graduation and all the way to ordination, but B3 and, and La Rosa and, and uh, uh, Lewis and, and I mean anyone that had training here, those are effects, okay, of the training ministry. Other effects, you know. Every message you preach, would that not be an effect? Is the Father working something here tonight? Is He producing an effect in a Christ-led ministry, in a Holy Spirit-empowered spiritual gift. You can think of these all as the effects. And so it's useful to, uh, to break it down in those, in those terms. Otherwise, uh, working passages can include um, Ephesians 1.11, Ephesians 3.20, Good reminders for us. Remember the view is to the dispensation of the fullness of time in Ephesians 1.10, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been, been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. So God's the one getting it done, but He's doing it after the counsel of His will. So if you're out of the will of God, how much of the Father's working in you do you think is going to happen when it's God who's at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure? Not your good pleasure, His good pleasure. Same thing with 3.20. To Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think according to the power that works within us, God gets it done. If you think it has to be your power or you have to get it done, think again. Of course, Philippians 2.13 is our verse tonight. Colossians 1.29. More working here. Paul says in verse 28, Colossians 1.28, he says, we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor striving according to His power which mightily works within me. It's God who's at work in you to willing to do of His good pleasure. And so you want to labor in your own might? That gets old real quick. You will run out of strength before you know it. You know, when, when we've exhausted our store of endurance, when, you know, uh, the day's not even half over yet, but God's grace is just getting started. It's infinite. He gives and gives and gives and gives again. So striving according to His power, mightily working within me. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also constantly thank God 
when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also, energeo, performs its work in you who believe. The word of God is powerful. When you internalize it, when you take, when humility receive the word implanted, it's able to save your souls. It's a living thing inside of you, right? And it does marvelous things once you get it there. You just got to get it there because it'll work. James 1 said it's able to save your souls. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says it performs its work for you who believe. It's got a work to do. It's going to accomplish the purpose for which God sent it. It's not going to return void. It's got work to do and He sent it and you're taking it in. And once it gets there, man, just let it do its thing. It's a glorious thing. A lot of times I, I use pregnancy as my illustration for that, you know, which I think bothers some women. But I mean, it's, it's a living thing inside of you, right? I mean, to me it's the marvelous analogy. It's better than parasites or some other thing you might go to. But I'm going to stick with pregnancy. And, and so it's a living thing inside of you. And you want it there. Okay? Because it does work once it gets there. It benefits you by being there. It does its work. So let the Word of God do its work. One final reference, and this one's kind of cheating because it's not an energeo use, but I think it's um, useful for us in 1 Corinthians 15.10 to remind ourselves about the grace of God and the best motivation you'll ever have for working harder than you've ever worked before is the grace of God. Legalism is the enemy of grace. And the thing, and every legalist I've met has accused the grace approach of being the lazy approach. And said that, well, grace is just an excuse to be lazy. And they've got it exactly backwards. The legalist is the lazy one. Grace motivates to work harder than the rest of them all put together. And um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, even put together, right? Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. God's the one working. It's all by His grace. And so grace is not a license to, to slack or be lazy and whatever and say, yeah, whatever. No, it's a motivation to work and to work and to work and to keep on working and to keep on working in grace knowing that God's the one doing it. Why would I stop if God's the one doing it? Okay? And really in a twisted way the legalist is the one that's the slug. Because the legalist is the one that kind of looks around, right? Gets impressed with himself. Feels like he's done enough because he's better than the next guy. And, and then at that point, you know, yeah, and then, and then, you know, okay, because he's better than the next guy and he's done more than the next guy, he feels he's entitled to, you know, take a break, stop, stop serving, whatever. He's, the legalist is the one that can't forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. The grace guy is the guy who can do that, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Anyway, we've got uh, principles there that I think are marvelous. God's present ministry in and through us had a prototype ministry in and through Jesus Christ. If you need an example of how this happens, look to Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 5.19 spells this out. 
This is the parallel to our present ministry. All right, uh, let's see. Put on a different set of glasses and recognize people in different ways. Verse 16 says, Therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. And that's kind of an interesting statement because, you know, Jesus came in the flesh and what's wrong with uh, recognizing the humanity and the earthly ministry and the whatever? What's wrong with, with recognizing that? Well, because where is He now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated having received the name above every name. And so it's a heavenly perspective that we should fix our eyes on Jesus in those terms, likewise with one another. When we look at one another in the body of Christ, are we looking at one another in the flesh? Are we looking at one another seated at the right hand of God the Father? Is that how we recognize one another? So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. So we can view one another as as the new creation in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly terms. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Notice that? Did Christ reconcile us? It says the Father reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. And in case you missed it in that verse, He repeats it in verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. You know, when Christ walked this earth, the Father was working in Him to will and to do of His good pleasure. The Father was Philippians 2.13ing Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And now the Father is waiting to Philippians 2.13 us. God's going to work in us. Think about how powerful that is. Because when Christ walked this earth, it was a monopresent reality. Jesus limited Himself in kenosis to a monopresent, you know, he had to walk places. He had to go from point A to point B, and sometimes it was walking on water or whatever, but he still had to go from one place to a different place. And everywhere he was is where he was, and everywhere else is where he wasn't. But the Father was in him, reconciling the world to himself, working. Now, the Father is still in Christ, but in Christ has gotten a lot bigger. Because in Christ is no longer monopresent. In Christ is now everywhere a born-again believer is on this planet. Because I'm in Christ. You're in Christ. We're all in Christ. Every born-again believer is in Christ. When I get to Kiev, Ukraine, there's going to be saints over there in Christ. And everywhere there are saints in Christ, the Father is at work in and through them for His good pleasure. Really, it's a neat pattern for us. And so, in doing this then, now what's He doing through us? He has now committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so this is actually, it's a ministry. In verse 18 it's called a ministry of reconciliation. So guess what? This is a ministry we all share. We all share this ministry, okay? I mean, we, we have different ministries and some you know, are teaching Sunday school and some are playing piano, some are changing dirty diapers in the nursery, some are dumping trash, some are, we've got different ministries around here, right? But one ministry we all have in common is this ministry of reconciliation, begging the lost and dying world to be reconciled to the Father. 
So it says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. God is making an appeal through us. Are you too ashamed to beg? God's not. He's begging through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's what God was doing, working in Christ. God's doing this, working through us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So God at work in and through us for His good pleasure. Our will and our work. Our will and our work. The will of God should never be a theoretical study apart from the works of God. If our will struggles to be conformed to God's will, then our work will likewise fall short. Boy, that's a fact. If we can't say, not my will but thine be done, then we're not going to accomplish anything. The good pleasure, the well-pleasing desire, the good pleasure of God. Hmm. Again, this the antithesis of fear and trembling is grumbling and disputing. <laughs> All right. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It was actually a very difficult series of classes to uh, teach. <laughs> I'm the chief of all grumblers and disputers. And, uh, and yet, you know, you, gotta, you preached it, you got to live it. So, you want fear and trembling or you want grumbling or disputing? I, su- I suggest fear and trembling. Grumble-free service has temporal and eternal benefits. Yeah, what a testimony. Proving yourself to be a child of God. And the evidence is there because you're not grumbling, you're not disputing. Unless you are, and then you just lost your testimony. Manifesting the light of heaven to this fallen world. Yeah, the day of Christ. Faithfully walking in this life supplies a great confidence for the imminent day of Christ. Philippians has so many rapture references. This is one of them. Okay, It's not the day of the Lord. That's tribulation and wrath. The day of Christ. That's the day the trumpet sounds and we're raptured and standing before His judgment seat. And then he uses this language of libation. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, you know, the idea is, is they are serving, they are sacrificing, they're bringing the, the bull, the ram, the goat, whatever. They, and, and Paul says, all right, let me chip into your sacrifice with the libation, with the drink offering. Because it might be his own physical death. Employing the priestly language of libation to describe his anticipated death being poured out. All right, well that's that. We'll come back on Sunday and we'll deal with the travel arrangements, the sending of Timothy, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. We'll wrap up chapter 2 and uh, get a look at chapter 3. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this review. There's so much that you've fed us with in these last two years. Thank you for, and we've forgotten a lot of it, Father. Um, thank you for reminding us, refreshing our thinking. Uh, continue to keep it in the forefront of our thinking, Father, that, uh, that you're the one doing the work, not ourselves. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.